The following resource is brought to you by Real Life Community Church in Richmond, Kentucky. We hope you're both challenged and encouraged by this message from Pastor Chris May. Matthew chapter 9, continuing our verse-by-verse study. Matthew 9, beginning in verse 18. The word of the Lord says this, while Jesus was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment for she said to herself if only I could touch his garment I will be made well Jesus turned and seeing her he said take heart daughter your faith has made you well and instantly the woman was made well when Jesus came to the ruler's house and he saw the flute players In the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and he took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all that district. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. One of the main reasons that Matthew wrote this gospel account is to illustrate Jesus' deity and to prove that he is, in fact, Israel's long-awaited Messiah and that he had come in to usher in God's kingdom upon the earth. Now, anybody can make the claim, and people have throughout history made the claim to be the Messiah, But if you're going to make such a claim, you need the power to back up that claim. And we've, as we've read through these uh, testimonies, uh, uh, through the book of Matthew, we have seen that Jesus actually has the power to back up the claim of his deity and the fact that he is truly the Messiah. As a quick review, chapters 5 through 7 we we find in chapters 5 through 7, we find Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And at the end of that, we read that the people saw that Jesus taught with some kind of authority. So he taught with the authority of the Messiah. And then in uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 14, we see Jesus has the power over sickness. He healed multitudes of people. In the next section in chapter 8, Jesus has power over the natural realm. Remember, he calmed the, the, the waves and the seas. And then we found out that not only does he have power over the natural realm, Jesus has power over the supernatural realm. He casts demons out of two men. And then you move on from there and you find out something even more profound, and that is that Jesus has the power and the authority to forgive sins. And today we come to a story, familiar text, where Jesus healed a woman with an issue of blood. She'd been sick for 12 years. 
And he raised a girl from the dead, showing that, yes, reminding us that he has the power to heal even the most debilitating diseases, and he has the power over death. And so in these stories, we're reminded again of, of yes, of Jesus' ability to heal. But do you ever have the question that I've wrestled with many times if this glorious God has the power to heal, why is it that some people are healed and others are not? If you've ever asked that, can we just be honest? Okay. Some of you are lying this morning. You need to repent right now. <laughs> because I think that's a fair question. So as we move through the text, I'm going to give some biblical insight to those questions. But my main points are this. Number one, I want us to look at the accessibility of Jesus. The accessibility of Jesus. And number two, I want us to again look at the power of Jesus. The accessibility of Jesus and the power of Jesus. So number one, let's look at his accessibility. For starters, we see throughout the Bible, and particularly in the chapters that we have been in recently, that Jesus moved amongst the multitudes. We've seen throughout Matthew that he ministered to crowds and crowds of people. He taught the multitudes. This is Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. It says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. He wasn't just teaching the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples. Crowds of people listened, and Jesus shared with them the truths of the kingdom. He healed, we know, and delivered multitudes of people. Matthew 8, 16, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. You know, most of us have no trouble believing that God moves amongst the multitudes. We know He moves amongst the nations and in churches when we gather like this. And it's glorious when God moves in such a way. I believe He's moved in such a way today. But I think many people struggle with the idea that actually, you know, the God who is kind of busy governing the universe, I have trouble believing He actually hears my prayers and cares about my, what you might call, little needs. So we understand that God moves in the crowds. But there's a beautiful truth in this story, and it's this, that even when he moved in the Bible in the crowds, he made time for the one. Boy, I hope that encourages somebody today. In Mark and Luke's account of this same story, we learn that again, Jesus, in this text, was amongst the crowd. Mark 5, 21, let me give you Mark's account. It says, when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. So Jesus is amongst, again, a multitude of people. And while Jesus was amongst the multitude, he stopped for two individual needs, one being a woman who's been sick for 12 years, this desperate outcast, and the other, a ruler of the synagogue whose daughter has just died. So let's begin with the ruler. This is Matthew 9, 18. It says, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died. Come, lay your hand on her and she will live. 
From Luke's gospel, we learned that the man's name was Jairus. I've heard many pronunciations. I'm going with Jairus. We've got some pregnant ladies in here. I just, you might consider that as a name. In this text, in Luke's account, we're actually told, you know, Matthew says he's a ruler, but we're told in Luke's account what kind of ruler he actually was. He was a ruler of the synagogue. And it's quite possible, get this, that this man was a Pharisee. That's particularly interesting, and here's why. Because Jesus, as we've moved through Matthew, we've seen this. How many times has he rebuked the Pharisees and called them hypocrites? But you know what I love about the story? Jesus rejected, it shows us that Jesus didn't just reject the Pharisees because he just didn't like those people. He rejected their self-righteousness and hardness of heart. But he gladly received any Pharisee like he would anybody who would humble himself and come and receive Jesus Christ in his ministry. Remember the story of Nicodemus, John chapter 3? Came to Jesus by night. What must I do to be saved? You must be born again. Matthew 9, 18. While Jesus was saying these things, it says, Behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him. Kneeling was an appropriate action or position taken before a king. And so you see what Jairus, most likely a Pharisee, was doing He was separating himself from those Pharisees who had rejected Jesus. And he knelt down before Jesus and recognized his authority. He humbled himself before the Lord. Now, this is so interesting. Like, little speculation here. I don't know how Jairus felt about Jesus before this moment. Is it possible that he was with the crowds of Pharisees that were frustrated with Jesus and even wanted to condemn Jesus. But what changed in J. Iris's life? His daughter died. And I don't care who you are, what you said you believe or don't believe, there will come a time in your life you'll realize you need him. I'll tell you, there's, there are many agnostics and atheists who say, I don't believe in God. You just wait. There'll come a time when you'll need him. Clint Brown, famous worship leader, told a story once. He was flying uh, somewhere, and uh, he was the guy next to him. You know, you make small talk, and he asks the guy what he does. The guy tells him, and so the man asks Clint. He says, "Hey, what do you do?" He says, "Well, I work in a church. I'm a I'm a pastor." And the guy says, "Well, you know, pastor, I don't believe in God. Religion's not for me. I don't believe, you know." in an intelligent, you know, intelligent design and in a creator. I don't believe in God. That stuff's not for me. Not minutes later, the plane came into uh, turbul- uh, turbulence and took a, di- a little bit of a dive, and, and the plane was, the, the people were freaked out. The man turns to him. He goes, pray, preacher. And Clint Brown looked at him and said, to who? <laughs> I had an atheist call me once who, agnostic, I should say. His daughter was in the hospital, and he said, hey, I just need you to pray for her. Listen, there'll come a time when you know your need for Jesus. I just believe that. 
I love the man's faith because Jesus has not raised anything, anybody from the dead yet. He's healed people. He's cast out demons. But this is, some, this is like a whole new category. And J.I.R. says, listen, if you just come to my daughter, she can rise. She can be made well. And look at Jesus' response. I just love, this is the accessibility of Jesus. He's so eager, so ready, so willing. And then Jesus arose, 19, verse 19. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. So, matter of fact, Jesus rose and followed him. He even brought his disciples So while he was amongst the multitude, he took the time for the one. And then, while he was on his way to Jairus' house, there's another interruption. I have to wonder what Jairus thought. I mean, his daughter is dead. Jesus is making his way. And now somebody else interrupts him. We don't like interruptions, do we? So look at verse, uh, we'll look now at the woman with the issue of blood. Look at Matthew 9, 20 and 21. Behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. The Bible says she had an issue of this discharge of blood. Now, it's likely that she had what's called menorrhagia which is a menstrual cycle that lasts for more than seven days. She's had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Can you imagine how anemic she must have been? And Luke's gospel, by the way, tells us even more detail. says that she had spent all of her money on physicians. All of her money on physicians. Nobody could help her. She was broke. She was ill. She was at the end of her rope. She was now marginalized in her society, cast out of the religious community, the end of her rope. Have you ever felt that way? But hearing about Jesus' ministry, it's like hope sparked in her again. And as the crowds pressed against Jesus, one of the other gospel writers says that the, the, the crowds thronged Jesus. It's like being in a mosh pit, right, at a concert. Like people just pressed in together. And this lady who was anemic and broken, I just imagine her as she goes to touch the hem of his garment, crawling through the crowd, mustering every ounce of strength she can. Say, oh, if I can just get to Jesus. What faith. And then look at Jesus' response. She touched Jesus. And Jesus said, Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was healed. Jesus could have just continued on, but he stopped and he spoke to her and he ministered to her. He took time for the one. Levi, I think we have a a picture of um, Connor and Dylan at at a basketball game. Yeah, there we go. Look at those little guys. That seems like yesterday. I've shared this before, but, but I want to share it again. We, when we lived in Colorado, we had the great privilege of going to many uh, Denver Nuggets basketball games. We're huge basketball fans, and 
such a joy. One of our friends from church had season tickets and really good seats. And so we, we often made the trip to Denver. And on one particular uh, night, we, we went to a game and uh, the player J.R. Smith did something. I don't remember what he did, but he got ejected from the game. But he wasn't like upset. He was like smiling. <laughs> and multitudes of people, there are crowds of people. And here's what happened. We were on the, the tunnel where the players go in and out uh, of the court. And all kinds of people are shouting, trying to high-five, and there's my son Dylan. And he's hanging over the, the banister, and he's reaching out his hand for a high-five, and J.R. Smith makes eye contact with him. Sees that sweet little face, that red hair. <laughs> and I think he's going to reach out to give him high-five, which is cool enough. But he takes off his jersey, and he says, here you go. He took time for the one. That changed Dylan's life. Matter of fact, we got to go just weeks later to uh, the Denver Aquarium that was um, a private party for the Denver Nuggets so that we could get that jersey signed, and he signed it for him. And it hangs in his room today, but yeah, it's cool when J.R. Smith takes time for the one, but how much better is it when Jesus Christ takes time for the one. Mm. That's the accessibility of Jesus. Let's look secondly at the power of Jesus. Number one, we see that he has power again over sickness. We go back to the story of the woman with the issue of blood. 9.22 says that Jesus turned and said to her, your faith has made you well. He calls her daughter. I love it. Your faith has made you well. And so, and instantly the woman was made well. Again, Jesus demonstrated his power over sickness. Now, the text says that she was made well. It doesn't say healed. And the Greek word translated well there is, is the word sozo. And something like 92 times in the New Testament, that word is translated saved. The, you take that coupled with the, the fact that she, uh, or he calls her daughter, there, a lot of scholars say it looks like she came from more than healing, that she put, that she really trusted in Christ and took this invitation to be part of his kingdom. The word sozo, it, it, it can mean, it means many things. There's lots of meanings, but ultimately it means wholeness. Because Jesus wants more than physical healing for us. He wants wholeness, spiritual, emotional, physical he wants us to be whole. And that's what this woman experienced. Secondly, not only does he have the power to heal and to make whole, but he has the power over death. Look at verses 23 and 24. Um, this is about Jairus. It says, when he came to, J to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they, the crowds, they laughed at him. They say, what in the world, like, this sounds like a prank being put in the Bible, like flute players, you just kind of insert this in. That's something like I would do. What in the world? Well, this is so interesting. In Jesus' day, funerals were not quiet and solemn like they are today. Jews would hire flute players and get this, as well as professional women mourners to stand outside and kind of wail 
The Talmud, matter of fact, declared this, quote, the husband is bound to bury his dead wife. I'm glad it clarified dead wife. And to make lamentations and mourning for her according to the custom of all countries. Watch, listen to this. Also, the very poorest among the Israelites will not allow her less than two flutes in one wailing woman. End quote. With Jairus being so well off and being such a dignified man, he would have had likely multiple flute players and mourners, professional mourners. They would beat their breast and cry out. And It's interesting, isn't it? And by the way, this would happen very quickly because they didn't have the preservation techniques that we have today, and it was hot, and bodies would decay very quickly. So this would happen immediately. That's why they had to get professionals, and the family couldn't travel, right? And so you, you have a professional mourner come. Then Jesus says something that seems it's at least curious. He says this, the girl is not dead but sleeping. Like, did Jesus not know the difference between sleeping and death? Isn't he the Lord? Of course he knew the difference. He knew she was dead. So there's another story that's very similar. In the book of John, it's the story of Lazarus. Remember the story of Lazarus? Lazarus was dead. They received report. The disciples received report. But guess what? Jesus told his disciples, oh, he's just sleeping. Look at it. Let me read this to you. John 11 11 through 14. After saying these things, Jesus said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. It's like, maybe he has an alarm clock. You don't need to travel to go wake him up. Hey, man, you're late for a meeting. But now listen to what Jesus says. Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought he meant he was taking a rest. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Friends, Jesus knew Jairus' daughter was dead. But her body was asleep, so to speak, and awaiting resurrection. One commentator said it like this. Jesus is not defining death. He's redefining it. Hallelujah. Matthew 9, 25, it says, But when the crowd had been put outside, Jesus went in and he took her by the hand, and the girl arose. No doubt she had been dead. The mourners were there. The flute players were there. And yet Jesus went in, took her by the hand, and the girl arose. I love the words of a Canadian scientist named G.B. Hardy who once said this. He says, When I looked at religion, I said, I have two questions. One, has anybody ever conquered death? And two, if they have, did they make a way for me to conquer death? He said, I checked the tomb of Buddha, and it was occupied. And I checked the tomb of Confucius, and it was occupied. And I checked the tomb of Muhammad, and it was occupied. And then I came to the tomb of Jesus, and it was empty. And I said, there is the one who conquered death. And I asked the second question, did he make a way for me to do it? And I opened the Bible and discovered that he said, Because I live, you too shall live. <laughs> Friends, the Christian faith hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not on your bad church experiences. 
not on your unanswered prayers. It hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. And this, there's a word that Jesus uses, or Matthew uses here, and it says, the girl arose, arose. Does that remind you of any other story in the Bible? It's resurrection language. This miracle, it's not about, okay, so now Jesus has come, so everybody who dies, if you just pray hard enough, you're going to be raised. That's not it. It's a foretaste. Jesus is giving a foretaste of the glorious end resurrection that will be the case for every single believer in Christ. The great Martin Luther lost his beloved 14-year-old daughter, Magdalena, to the great plague that swept through Europe in the 16th century. And those who knew Luther later recalled the event. Here's what they said. Brokenhearted, Luther knelt beside her bed and begged God to release her from her pain. And then when she finally died and the carpenters were nailing down the lid of the coffin, Luther screamed out, Hammer away, hammer away, for in the last day she shall rise again. Friends, when, our, when we die, our bodies are sleeping, so to speak. We know there's some mystery what happens to our soul, spirit. We know to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But the New Testament often uses this language of sleeping. The goal of the Christian life is not that state. It's a glorious state, but that's not the goal. The goal is not when we go to heaven, but when heaven comes to earth, the earth is renewed, and our bodies are raised, and we shall forever be with the Lord. What a glorious hope. So Jesus has the power over sickness. He has the power over death. But thirdly, very importantly, he has the power over uncleanness. Uncleanness. In this story, both the sick woman and the girl who had died had issues beyond the physical. Both, by Jewish law, would have been considered unclean. Now, I talked about this a few weeks ago, but I want to review it. So it seems a little bit bizarre if you don't understand the big picture of the Bible. So to start with, we've got to talk about the fact that God is holy. And what's it mean to be holy? Well, it means to be set apart. To be set apart, to be unique, to be distinct. And friends, God is holy. He is distinct from His creation. He is above. He transcends us. He is set apart. Which means, by the way, that the space around God is holy. And consequently, the people who are near the presence of God must be set apart, distinct, holy. So in the Old Testament, you remember that God dwelt in the tabernacle and then the temple, and so there were certain purification rituals that had to happen if you were to go into those places. And Leviticus tells us that God's people are not to be defiled, which means they're not to be unclean when entering those places. So uncleanliness, it's not about you taking a shower, not taking a shower. It's about Please take a shower, but it, it is the, uh, I just want to clarify, it is the opposite of holiness. It's the opposite of holiness. So in Israel, this is so interesting, an Israelite who was unclean by these purification laws, listen, he would be put outside of the community. R.D., why are you walking outside of the community as I'm talking about this? <laughs> I love you, buddy. It was an illustrated sermon. Well, this begs the question, how in the world did a person become unclean? Well, let me take you to the book of Numbers chapter 5. 
The Lord said to Moses, this is chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel that they are to put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through coming in contact with the dead. You shall put both male and female, putting them outside the camp that they may not defile the camp in the midst of which I dwell, says the Lord. And the people of Israel did so. They put them outside the camp. And the Lord says to Moses, so the people of Israel did. So hang with me. According to this text, there are four issues that would make you unclean. Number one, leprosy, skin disease. Number two, the discharge of blood. Number three, the discharge of semen. And number four, coming in contact with a dead body. Now, you read this or you hear this and you're just puzzled, right? Are you puzzled a little bit? And it's like, why in the world is this in the Bible? Why is it relevant? Like, if you go to a funeral and you touch the hand of the person in the casket like you're unclean? What in the world? If you have a skin disease by no fault of your own, you're unclean and have to be put outside the camp? After a menstrual cycle, a woman would be unclean for a period of time? Like, what in the world? You might think, man, this is brutal. Fair enough, but these regulations, if you understand the big picture, are actually profound and beautiful. Hear me. Almost done. God's holiness is connected to Him being the creator and the sustainer of life. He is the living God. So the life-infused sacred space around the tabernacle where God's presence dwelled was not to be contaminated with the realm of death. So let's just think through this. Contact with dead bodies would self-evidently bring a person in contact with the realm of death. Blood and semen are both associated with life. Hence, the discharge of them would move a person away from life and towards the realm of death. The skin diseases fall in the category of, uh, that fall in the category of leprosy would literally eat a, away someone's flesh, moving them towards the realm of death. And so the idea is that a person who was unclean would contaminate God's holy space. And there's a profound truth here in these purification laws. Because as modern people, here's what we think. We think that the only thing that separates us from God is bad behavior. But the issue, friends, is much deeper than that. It's more than adultery and lying and stealing and gossip and sins that separate us from God. Apart from Jesus, friends, we are dead, dead in trespasses and sin. We are the walking dead, literally. That show should be about us. We are the walking dead. It's the human condition that's the problem. That's why you can't just change and be more moral and get to God because the problem is much deeper than that. We have all inherited this body of death from our first forefather, Adam, and I am and you are by nature defiled and unclean, moving towards that realm of death. So what the law shows us is that we are in desperate need of purification if we're ever going to be brought back to God because it realized, it, it brings to our attention the great chasm that exists between us and the holy God. And I am so grateful the story doesn't end in Levit, uh, Leviticus and Numbers. So let's go back to Matthew. So remember, a Jew who came in contact with a woman with the issue of blood 
would be considered now unclean for a period of time. Someone who would touch a dead girl's body, Jesus touched her. He took her hand. He'd be considered unclean. And yet, what did he do in spite of it? <laughs> he ministered in contact, came into contact with both of them. And here's the beauty of this. What happened? The woman and the girl's uncleanness did not infect Jesus' holiness. But his holiness infected their uncleanness. Whew. Unclean people would be taken outside of the gate, away from the religious community. How tragic. So as to not infect the tabernacle, the temple. But I want you to listen to Hebrews 13, verse 12, that says this, Jesus suffered outside of the gate. You see how it connects now? In order to sanctify his people, to cleanse them, to, to make them holy through his own blood, Hebrews 13, 12 says. So Jesus, think of this, in the story, the woman was cut off, the dead girl cut off, but Jesus was put outside of the city gate, broken off from fellowship with God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we could be sanctified, made holy by his own blood. It's the good news of the gospel's friends. Jesus has the power over sickness, over death, and the power over uncleanness, over impurity. Which means we can be brought near through Christ to the true and living God. So let me close by giving you some quick application. Number one is this. Hear me. Take your burden to the Lord. Remember that old song? Take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. Do it this morning. Some of you think, man, after all I've done, after where I've been, I don't know that God would hear me. I don't know if he cares. I mean, maybe he's too busy. We see in the story, <laughs> he's not too busy. He's God. And he can govern the universe and yet take time to give you his attention. He is access accessible. Philippians 4, 16, be anxious about nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be named to God, be known to God. Then we come to this question that I told you I'd address because I, I just feel the need to, to preach this. And by the way, I do this with lots of grace because there are people in here, people all over that, that disagree with me and I can see some of their points in the Bible, but I think when you all put the whole Bible together, this is where I've come to on the doctrine of healing. And uh, so I just want to share my thoughts, and you can search the Scriptures yourself. But th I think this is a fair question, and it's a question that troubles people. If God heals some, why aren't all healed? And let me just say there's some mystery there. There's some mystery there, but... You read through Matthew 8 and 9, and, and what we see is the pervasiveness of Jesus' healing ministry. It's pervasive. And, and you keep seeing this word repeated or this phrase over and over in some way, in some form, is that like the woman with the issue of blood, her faith. Woman, your faith has made you well. You, you see J. Iris who came a distance in faith. We see this, the, the centurion faith that Jesus commands, which begs the question, are all believers healed if they have enough 
faith. Because we can read a verse like this and say, like, wow, it seems like Jesus heals everyone who comes to him in faith. And let me say that faith is very important. I'm not discrediting that. But I want to point out, number one, that while faith is important, some miracles happen in the Bible apart from faith. Let's just look at Matthew 8. Remember when Jesus calmed the storm? And what did he say to his disciples? O ye of little. And then what did Jesus do? He calmed the storm. You think of 2 Corinthians 12 where Paul has this thorn in the flesh. And he prays in faith. You think Paul was a man of faith? Three times he asked and the Lord said no. But here's what he did say. My grace is sufficient. I don't think in this life that we're getting, and I believe and I think we should pray for healing. I don't want to discredit that. But I don't think we're guaranteed every time. Like, if you're not healed, I don't necessarily think it's owing to your lack of faith. And I would really discourage you from ever making somebody on their sickbed think that that's the case. But here's the promise. His grace is sufficient. His grace. Listen, we pray for Casey all the time. I prayed today. Bob and I went and prayed over the water this morning. I just, Lord, let her come out healed. And I don't know why that didn't happen. And I'm not giving up. But I'll tell you this. This lady right here is a woman of God. And God's grace is sufficient. Brother Ron's brother, Tommy, passed away a few weeks ago. How, how old was Tommy, Ron? 62 years old. Very young. Sickness came out of nowhere. The prognosis was not good. How many times did we pray for him as a church? How many times did your family pray for him? How many times did he pray? I went to the funeral and the testimony that was remarkable. As much as the whole family in our church wanted healing for Tommy, Christ was glorified in Tommy. Because Tommy still praised the Lord even in sickness and said, Listen, I just sense it's my time. And he had a remarkable, I mean, you, you talk to Ron. He had a remarkable faith in the face of death. My grace is sufficient. So while faith is important, I don't think that necessarily if you're sick, it's owing to your faith. And then we say, well, is God a respecter of persons? Got to re people say this all the time, God a respecter of persons. In other words, if God heals Hunter, shouldn't he have to heal me as well? So some of you who have multiple kids, do you like at Christmas and birthday try to make sure they get like the exact dollar? Like I had a grandma that did that. It's like, well, I, they get you like an extra 30 cent gift because we spent, you know, $20.30 on this kid. And only, I mean, really, I'm like, hey, it's fine. Like our kids don't feel like you love them any less. Just only 30 cents less of love. Like it's not a big deal. But, you know, here's the thing. People have said, because there's a verse, and we're going to read it, Romans uh, 2. Go there with me if you have your Bible. Romans 2, verse 6. So people say to me all the time, well, you know, God's no respecter of a person. And what they mean is what we're reading in Matthew 8, God loves you the same, which means he owes you the same things. He's bound because he's no respecter of persons to do the exact same thing for you, what he did for the one with the issue of blood. Well, Let's read the verse in context, which I think is always kind of helpful. Romans 2, verses 6 through 11. 
Jesus, uh, Paul says that God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Did you get that? Eternal life? But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There's two choices, wrath and fury, eternal life. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does, who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Which King James, I think, great translation that says, he is no respecter of persons or something along those lines, which is where that comes from. Now, what's that about? God will receive the rich ruler who's a Pharisee. He'll, he'll receive the Roman centurion who's a Gentile. He'll receive anyone of any tribe, of any race, who will humble himself or herself before the Lord. It's about salvation. Okay, let's move on. Aren't we then healed by Jesus' stripes? Well, the Bible says, present tense, how many have heard this? By his stripes, we are healed. Come on, pastor. Okay, fair enough. I don't disagree. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Hallelujah. He was crushed for our iniquities. Hallelujah. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, or by his stripes, some translations say, we are healed. Is that true? Yes and amen. Hallelujah. But here's what you've got to understand. You've got to take the Bible as a whole. And what the Bible teaches us that we, is that we are in a, an already but not yet season of the kingdom of God. He has come. The kingdom has been inaugurated. We have a foretaste of what's to come. But the kingdom has not yet been consummated, completed. But it will be when Jesus returns. So let me just argue this for a second. Is sin covered in the atonement? Absolutely. Are we bound by sin anymore? No, we're not bound by it. Do we still wrestle with it? Do Christians ever mess up from time to time? When Jesus comes back, will we struggle with it anymore? No. Okay? Already, but not yet. Is death covered in the atonement? Did Jesus conquer death? He did. And yet the Bible also says it'll finally be conquered. We, do we still die as Christians? We do. Already, but not yet. That death doesn't have the final say. Well, again, is healing covered in the atonement? I think so. It's one of the symbols of God, 15, our 16 fundamental truths. I said 15. I just took one away. <laughs> Sorry, Ben. <laughs> That's funny right there. Um, inside joke. So healing is covered in the atonement, but get this. It's already, but not yet. I believe, we, we believe, we're... We believe in the continuation of the gifts. I believe that God still heals. I've seen it. I've witnessed it. I've received it. But there's some mystery here. It doesn't always happen. Many times it doesn't happen for faithful, faithful, faithful believers. I just uh, went to a funeral this last week from a former member of ours, uh, Sherry Leonardo. I don't know that you could get a greater woman of faith. I mean, she believed God. She loved God. She loved His Word. When healing happens, do you know it's temporary at best? 
Heal people, get sick again, heal people, die. It's temporary. But you know what the great miracle is? It's the miracle of salvation, which ultimately will result in absolute, total, and eternal healing. So, let's just close with this verse. Revelation 21, verses, Revelation 21, 3 through 4. Go with me. I didn't get there. My pages are sticking together. Okay, Revelation 21, verse 3. John says, I've heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, (laughs) for the former things have passed away. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your healing. Thank you for your grace. And thank you that your grace is sufficient even when our prayers don't get answered in the way in which we think. Lord, help us not to be like Job's friends who take one verse and and think that we have you figured out. I don't have you figured out, and I've been preaching for over two decades. You are God. We are not. Your ways are above our ways. Your thoughts above our thoughts. And so when we don't understand, we say we trust you. And we thank you that you give us the grace. You don't leave us. You don't forsake us in those moments of pain. Thanks for walking with us. And so today as we close and we open up these altars for prayer, God, we pray for healing. We want that for our friends and for our family. And we just trust you. We're not the healers. You are. And we trust you. And when that happens, we rejoice. And when it doesn't happen in the way that we think, though we pray in faith always, we still trust you and we give you the glory because you're worthy no matter the circumstances. And you will receive our praise. Thank you for Tommy, Ron's brother, for making you look beautiful as he honored you in sickness and even in death. Oh, how beautiful you look, Lord, in that moment. Help us today. Lift our hearts. And I pray this message has helped somebody who has wrestled with this question, who is themselves dealing with sickness or have a family member who deals with sickness. Help us, Lord, to just trust you, sovereign God. And we pray this in the name of your Holy Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or if you have questions about our church, you can email us at info at myrealchurch.org. Real Life Community Church is located at 335 Glendon Avenue in Richmond, Kentucky. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday at 1045 a.m. or Wednesday at 7 p.m. Visit us online at myrealchurch.org.